Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, hello, Seattle. Hello, Puget Sound, and welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, advanced sommelier, your weekend wine guy, and... Uh, well, the the sergeant of sushi. I don't know. I, you know, sergeant's just quite not quite the high enough level of expertise. I would say the scholar of sushi because there is a brand new sushi place opened up here in the Greater Seattle area, the University District, to be exact. And I, uh, of course, you know, many of the. Uh, Along with the huge paycheck I get every week, uh, there are all sorts of perks. Uh, and typically, you get to go to brand new openings for restaurants and wineries and breweries and special events and such. And I had the pleasure of participating just the other day, uh, to trekking over to U Village, which is, gosh, still a spectacular place. Uh, and I found a parking spot, so that made it super fun for me. But there's a brand new place called Bamboo, and it's not new uh, uh, for the Pacific Northwest or for America. It actually started in Portland, and I have and to have the founder and CEO, uh, you know, and a very handsome man also named Christopher. <laughs> He's here in studio, and we're going to talk about this whole idea of sustainability, which is one of those buzzwords uh, for the last uh, few years. And, of course, moving forward, I'm sure we'll see it on everything, just like uh, gluten-free. <laughs> uh, Christopher Lofgren, uh, Sustainable Restaurant Group, Bamboo Sushi, founder and CEO. Hey, welcome to Happy Hour Radio. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. So uh, you are a Berkeley grad, huh? I am. Wow, go Bears. Guilty as as charged. (laughs) So... were you eating sushi down there? And uh, I think right because you're, you're you're probably eating sprouted nuts or <laughs> grains. <laughs> a lot of granola. Yeah, yeah. What's going on down there? Yeah. No. I grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, I was born in in San Francisco and uh, grew up in Los Angeles, and then uh, chose to go back up north to Berkeley for my uh, for my college years. And uh, in Los Angeles, uh, my two favorite foods that I ate growing up were Mexican food and and Japanese food, and predominantly sushi. And so uh, I ate a lot of sushi in college as well. Um, and then when I moved, you could afford sushi in college, huh? I, so I got an athletic scholarship, and so what? I had I had a little bit of a stipend. And ah. um, as an athlete, you know, you're told to fuel your body. And so I always oh, felt like swimmer? sushi, uh, a, a rower and a basketball oh, player. There. Oh, hoops, huh? Yeah, Berkeley hoops. Wow, yeah. good for you. Very cool. So high protein diet with uh, some uh, whole grains, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then I uh, moved to Portland in 2000 and, uh, 2006 and um, noticed that there wasn't a lot of good sushi, but there was a lot of great fish. And was really surprised by the fact that the Pacific Northwest has this incredible history of fishing, um, but not necessarily the, the richest uh, amount of uh, sushi restaurants. And well, so, I think it's because the fishing industry was dominated by um, the Swedes and the Norwegians. <laughs> they had a whole I- different idea of what to do with that fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so invested in a sushi restaurant as a side project while I was planning on going to Lewis and Clark, uh, a college in Portland for environmental law. Oh, wow. And then, um, the restaurant investment shockingly went terribly and, uh, you know, it was the first investment I ever made in a restaurant. And, um, um, I stepped in to learn more about the restaurant, just trying to understand my investment and why it wasn't working. Wait, wait, wait which restaurant is this? I don't want to say just oh, because it, that, okay. they're, they're, the, the person that I invested with still exists and they have a restaurant. I, I don't want to talk badly All about right. them. Yes. Um, but nonetheless, um, as that happened, I started learning about the fact that the restaurant industry in general has 
this beautiful element to it in which it touches so many different facets of important aspects of people's lives. So health and wellness, uh, agriculture, um, food systems, uh, immigration, um, you know, uh, just climate change. There's so many different aspects of these things. And, um, and, and I felt like restaurants should do more to uh, better the world. And they had an opportunity to do that. And on top of it, they're the largest employer in the private sector. So the federal government's number one, and then after that is the <laughs> restaurant industry. And when you talk about the fact that we all know that there's a, a middle class that's fading away right now, um, the restaurant industry has to have a role in helping the middle class. And so restaurants are, of course, not known as being a place where people go to have a lifelong career of prosperity. And I wanted to change that. And so looking at that, I said, wow, you could actually make a massive environmental impact and a massive social impact through this business that's oftentimes overlooked and kind of uh, is, is sort of viewed as a as a side project for a lot of people. You know, I'm oh, I'm working in the restaurant industry until I get a real job. And and then the big corporations <laughs> said that ten years ago. <laughs> yeah, the big yeah the big the big corporations that a lot of people know, the McDonald's of the world and Burger Kings, etc. They're not really doing a lot for any aspect, right? They don't care about the environment. They don't care about people. So when you look at that, um, that that leaves a really sad sort of story of of fixing a lot of things that are broken. And so I was like, why don't we create a company that that always does things right for the planet, always does things right for people, and. Um, I found this guy, and now, now he's very famous, but back then not a lot of people knew about him, named Danny Meyer. Um, and really? He, he had written a book called Setting the Table, which became a New York Times bestseller, and I read that book. And uh, I've said, this guy says a lot of the same things I believe in, um, and he's won you know 20 James Beard Awards, but he's in New York City. I feel like I can do this in Portland with this sushi idea that I'm already invested in. And I went to my business partners, and I said, here's what I want to do. I want to create the first sustainable and socially responsible sushi restaurants. And they said, that's a dumb idea. And in, in theory, they were right because everything <laughs> that I wanted to do, that we were, everything that they were doing, which was right. a part of a traditional sushi restaurant, you couldn't do, you know, you had to get rid of bluefin tuna, you had to get rid of hamachi, you had to get rid of farmer's salmon, you had to get rid of farmer's shrimp, you had to get rid of all these things that people had come to be accustomed to eating in sushi restaurants, uh, freshwater eel, unagi, um, all these things, and you had to give people alternatives, and they said nobody's going to come to that sushi restaurant, because these are the things that all people like to eat. There's no soy nagi then? Right, exactly. (laughs) And so I said, no, I think, you know, we can do this, and so my belief was not only to be sustainable, but to also be certified for that sustainability. Because I wanted to create a brand that wasn't about trust me, Christopher, the entrepreneur, because that's not a trustworthy thing, right? Don't trust the business, man. Don't trust the chef, not because chefs are untrustworthy, but chefs are artists. They're, they're cultural icons or creators. They're not scientists. I said, let's find scientists. Let's get audited by them. Let's work with them. Let's take this information, and then let's distill it down in a really exciting way for the customer to be able to understand. And it'll also build a stronger employee culture because the employees will feel like their business is really walking the talk, right? And so my business partner said, this is a terrible idea. We don't want to be a part of it. You don't know anything about restaurants. And uh, I said, well, you guys are you know, running a restaurant that's not doing super well. Why don't I buy you out? And they said, okay, that'll be great. And they thought it was a death sentence for me. And in some ways, they were they were right because you know this was the end of two thousand and seven. Well, it was do or die. Right? It was do or die, and I had no money, and I was a college student, and I you know was like um, you know kind of I had spent all the money I'd ever saved doing Did this you restaurant my project. <laughs> yeah, well, what ended up happening was I borrowed some money from some family friends who said we believe in you. Um, one of those people being my mother, um, who was the person who believed in me the most. And um, <laughs> yay I moms, th- always yay mom. And um, I said okay. And so I uh, I went to them and I bought them out. 
And then, you know, I had to close down the old restaurant. I had to come up with a new menu, new supply chain, new everything. And I had to convince the chefs and the people who were working there to stay with me because I was not a restaurant person. And restaurant people like working for restaurant people. They don't like outsiders, understandably. And so um, that took a while. And then the funny thing was we were slated to open in November of 2008. And if we all remember back, September of 2008, the entire U.S. economy collapsed. Right. But The The House of Cards. House of Cards. But the blessing in disguise was the fact that when I originally called for people to talk to me about selling me sustainable fish, they all laughed at me in early 2008 because the economy was booming. They had contracts with Marriott and Disney and all these other uh, large corporations, large restaurant groups, and they didn't need this little punk kid restaurant company in making Portland. Making it hard for them, yeah. Making it hard to get them this fish that was really difficult that only I was selecting. So they would say, well, you can get that sustainable fish if you buy this unsustainable thing over here from us that we have on our you know list all the time and i said that's against our values so they said yeah don't call us right get get away and then the economy collapses <laughs> and what ends up happening is all those phone calls started coming back to me and they said you still interested and i said yeah but i'm not going to buy the unsustainable stuff and they said okay let's do a deal and so we were actually able to have a blessing in disguise by the economy collapsing it allowed us to actually start buying things from people that we needed um right right kind of at the buzzer in the 11th hour so that's how the company got started. And you're in Portland, and that was the first store, so it opened yeah. when? Um, it opened November 4th of 2008, so okay. we're coming up on 11 wow, years right. this November. Wow, and so that was a very struggling time. You said and not only the economy, but people's uh, you know disposable income changed drastically, and of course, we're going through the foreclosure thing, and, yeah. and there was a lot of stress, and a lot of, you know, I saw people in the restaurant business get laid off because people weren't coming. Yep. Winers were discounting everything. And I, I can imagine that's a huge struggle, but was your affordability part of that uh, model at the beginning? Yeah, it was. I always believed that sustainable, healthy, nutritious food should be available to everyone. I view that as a right, not a privilege. And so um, for me, it was something where I said, okay, if we all know that um, seafood is the most widely consumed animal protein source in the world, mm-hmm. uh, everyone is pretty much saying in agreement that it's very uh, favorable to the human health and diet and things like that with omega-3s and um, you know just a healthy uh, uh, fat uh, content and also protein. Um, you know, Let's give this to people at the best price we can and make it as nutritious and sustainable as possible. So the other belief was if you give somebody a premium product and sell it at a more discounted price, you're going to get people who say, okay, I'm going to buy that over the other competitor. And so when we did that, it was funny because in the in the recession, people stopped, you know, they, they got rid of their houses or second houses, they got rid of their boats, they got rid of nice cars, but they still needed, I mean, human beings, we still need something fun and we need hope, right? Yes. And Obama actually at the time, his whole campaign was around hope. And so um, restaurants were at the time not necessarily viewed as entertainment, but they've become that. And landlords and developers will tell you that they're a major form of entertainment now. Um, along with health and wellness, which has boomed during that same time. And so we got really lucky because, you know, people would go to the movies and they would go out to eat. And those were kind of their last two things. And so what people started doing was they would they would curtail their choice. They could say, okay, I can't go out to eat now multiple times a week and go out to eat once a month. And when I spend my money, I'm going to go somewhere where I know I'm going to get great value and I know I'm going to get something that I can trust. And so we just slowly were able to build that up with people. And so we actually did really well in the recession. We were profitable after our first two months in business and never looked back. And I I was the sole owner of the company for nine years. We now have outside investors who are helping us scale nationally. Sure. Um, 
But um, I was able to to make it work just being the sole sole owner because I just you know rolled the money back into itself and we kept opening stores and we kept adding better benefits. A la and entrepreneur, else. that's what we do, and not yeah. only sweat, uh, blood, and tears, but of course cash flow. And you opened up a second restaurant in Portland, or did you move to Denver right away and, and expand in that fashion? No, Denver was our fifth location. We now have five locations in Portland, wow. six total before Seattle. Seattle we just opened last night, right? Um, and that was our seventh. Um, so we're we're really excited now to be in three states with seven locations, um, and we've got a, a, a fast casual brand called Quickfish, um, which is in Portland and Denver. Um, but we're predominantly focused on bamboo being the the more unique. Is Quickfish raw and fried or baked? And uh, it is raw and and it is somewhat cooked. So we've got you know tempeh. Uh, uh, we've got a lentil uh, tempeh that we do. We've got a, a, an organic grilled chicken, and then we've got a lot of fish options. Um, and it's in a bowl, so it's it's poke, it's salads, sure. it's it's just kind of a fast health and wellness. We call it bamboo in a bowl in three to five minutes for ten dollars. Okay. That's sort of our thing. But bamboo is really the exciting thing because with fast casual in general, it's more transaction based, whereas with uh, bamboo, it's more experientially based. We get to spend an hour with you and talk right. to you about the fisheries and the ranches and the the sake that you tried and all these really exciting things. Whereas with quick fish, it's just more of a you know, what do you need? How can we get you fueled up and ready to go on your day as quickly as possible, which is great. But we really, as a team, we really love the uh, the joy that we get to have in inter- interacting with our with our guests more at Bamboo. Well, congratulations. You say the lifespan of a typical restaurant is five years, and obviously you are uh, close to doubling that time span, in addition to uh, you know em- expanding your empire, which is great, and, and also um, championing the idea of accountability and we'll say sustainability as well and we think you know it's a challenging world when we talk about this climate thing and that everything has an effect now that we're more conscious about that and so there's a little bit of stress and guilt it's like well I should really walk to the store but I don't want to walk with three bags of groceries so I'm going to drive to the store (laughs) and you know we make those little choices those little deals and sometimes like well shoot I'm going to fly to Hawaii I'm not going to row a boat (laughs) we have to make some choices but when it comes to something that is a luxury and dining out is certainly a luxury and a privilege because um, of just what it takes you know a conglomeration of people and ideas and, and having all those working parts but then having a chance to sit down and actually get the products and service before you pay, that is rare, right? Yep. That is rare. Only in the wine world they think they can do that with um, Premier. Hey, folks, I'm speaking with Christopher Lofgren, who's the uh, CEO and founder of Bamboo Sushi and Quickfish, which uh, they just opened that Bamboo Sushi down in U Village. We're going to talk about the restaurant and some of the cool food and, and really what makes uh, sustainability uh, true for Bamboo Sushi. Hey, folks, stick around. we got more coming up on Happy Hour Radio. Putting America first and holding the powerful accountable. Sean Hannity, weekdays 6 to 9 p.m. Talk Radio 570, KVI. You're in the know with KVI Want to Know Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, so hey, welcome back. Time for round two, and I got two cool cats sitting in studio. One of them, well, heck, they're both named Chris. Christopher Lofgren is the CEO and founder of Bamboo Sushi, which is truly uh, one of the North America's uh, most sustainable enterprises when it comes to restaurants. And let's jump right into that, Christopher. Uh, when you say sustainable, you know, 
they say that farm-raised salmon is sustainable because it is something that you can regenerate, and you've you know there's some a lot of good things about it because it's not being overfished. What's your take on farm-raised salmon, and how are you sustainable in that fashion? Yeah, so uh, great question. Most farm-raised salmon is not sustainable, um, and that is because of the fact that it is fed a diet that is not healthy for the salmon and therefore not healthy for human consumption afterwards. As well, the fish are not grown in pens or in a manner that allows for them to um, propagate in a way that is healthy for them, so then they have to be fed antibiotics, hormones, etc., um, dyes to be able to make the fish look like what a salmon is supposed to look like. And so that's bad for the the um, the uh, the habitat in which those fish are grown, and it's ultimately bad for the fish, and then ultimately bad for people when they eat it. There are some farms, and I like I liken um, farm raised fish very similarly to factory farming of animals. Right, there is some ways of farming a pig or a chicken or a cow that is really good. It's good for the planet. It's good for people. It's good for the animal. Um, obviously, we're not talking about cruelty at that point, so it's, it's sort of a separate conversation for vegans. So I understand if anybody's out there saying it's none of it's good for them, but but we're talking just about the health and wellness of the animal, uh, not the killing of it. And you can do the same thing with fish. If you grow fish in a way that um, is, is on a natural diet, they therefore don't they don't get sick, so they're able to then you know grow naturally, and then you. Um, Raise them in a way in which the pen is, uh, or the the enclosement that they're in is is uh, is uh, you know getting fresh water through it, and and they're not swimming around in their own feces and other disgusting things that happen with a lot of farms. That fish will grow up to be healthy, and then when you eat it, you're going to be healthy from that as well. Um, How long does it take for a fish to mature? Uh, it really depends. So there's a lot of uh, based on different species, it's different timelines, and then um, also based on the type of um, farm, right? So a lot of larger corporations want the fish to grow in just a few months, and that's too fast. Um, whereas, you know, um, some of the farms that we would work with um, who are feeding everything naturally, the feed conversion is less than, you know, two to one. Um, you've got um, an, uh, an all-natural diet. You've got fish swimming in their own natural waters. Um, there's there's plenty of cross-current that goes through, et cetera. Those fish sometimes will take six months to a year and a half. Okay. It really depends. Um, and that's what we like. We like the fish to grow up healthy, strong, um, and, and be something that is good for the, the environment that it's in. I'm curious, so. are farm-raised fish hungry at 5 a.m.? Like, yeah. <laughs> would think a wild fish? They, drink, they have coffee. They, they have, have coffee. coffee. Yeah, no, so it's, it's the right farm-raised fish is good. And, and what I always tell people is, look, at the end of the day, um, farm raising a fish is one of the fastest growing agricultural industries in the world. And Quick seaf- protein, yeah. yeah and, and seafood is one of the largest, uh, it is the largest traded commodity in the world by weight. And so uh, farm-raised animals have actually overtaken wild capture animals in terms of the amount of consumption. And so if you don't support the farms that are doing good work, you are only going to allow the farms that are doing bad work to be bigger. So we really want to get involved in that conversation early because you have to support good farm-raised fish because that industry is not going anywhere. So just standing on the sidelines and plugging your ears and closing your eyes <laughs> is not going to allow that to go away. So we support both. We support really sustainable wild capture fish, things like we were one of the largest buyers of wild capture salmon on the West Coast. Um, we're one of the largest buyers Meaning of wild- Meaning troll cod or, or- Exactly, using- pull, pull in line, yeah. exactly. The old school way, we work with a lot of Native American cooperatives. We love supporting all of these different things. But at the same time, 
Farm-raised salmon is one of the fastest-growing types of farm-raised fish. We have to support the good farm-raised salmon. And you had a great piece of salmon there because I'm very uh, skeptical about salmon. Same. You know, I see yep. most of it is orange, and that uh, that's what I know. But you have a different type of salmon. A lot of it's Atlantic salmon, but you yeah, have king we salmon. We have a king salmon that's, and, and we have a king salmon that is a Pacific Coast salmon, and it is actually from its native area. So um, it is grown in, in in New Zealand and Tasmania, Pacific waters, Pacific yep, Ocean. in Pacific Ocean waters, and it's grown using um, actually sacred Maori um, tribal waters. It is uh, one of the cleanest, most beautiful places I've ever been. So the, the salmon is called Ora King Salmon, Ora uh, being gold. Um, they, they liken it to that level of quality. It's a joint venture between the indigenous people, the Maori people of New mm. Zealand, and the government working together to come together to create a natural resource that is of the highest standards. New Zealand has some of the highest right. standards in the world around food and, and guns, agriculture, <laughs> wellness, etc. So this is this is the best farm-raised product, I think, anywhere in the world. I was truly impressed. Yeah. It blew me away, and I, I actually ate more than a piece of it because it was firm, it was flavorful, and it, it just felt as close to natural, real salmon as I could come to. You also have different ingredients or different sources of protein for these classic dishes, and one is, is red tuna. And I'll call it red versus yeah, white because absolutely. albacore is white, and albacore is what we get in the can. Red tuna, um, a guru, the big fish that... That we are prized in Tokyo, Japan, or wherever, and for thousands and thousands of dollars. You have a different take on that. Yeah, so we, we catch our fish. Uh, we get a big eye tuna from Hawaii. We work with a fisherman who does a day boat long line soak. So um, what they do is they set a line for just the day, and it has a rounded hook on the end. So if it's a shark, a dolphin, a turtle, or a bird, they can easily, if they accidentally grab the hook, they can easily rotate their head because their heads can turn and they can get off of it. But a tuna, because it's kind of like one mass of muscle, they can't turn their heads. <laughs> one mass of missile, right? Yeah, exactly. It's a giant. <laughs> so they can't get off of it very easily. So it's great because you drastically limit almost to zero the bycatch. And if anything is on the line, the fishermen come along, they remove it, and then there's nothing harmed other than the tuna that we're specifically targeting and trying to catch. And because it's also day boat, the tuna hasn't struggled for – sometimes a lot of people, when they're eating their tuna, they don't know that. Tuna's been out there swimming and struggling, raising its cortisol levels for weeks. So by the time they're getting that muscle, it's full of histamines. It's not good for you. Yeah. But this animal has only been on the line for a very short amount of time. It's usually still swimming and totally fine. It's just hooked. And then it's killed Ikejime style, which is the severing of the cord, the spinal cord in the neck, which is the traditional Japanese style. It actually sedates the animal the most and is the most um, – uh, cruelty free, so to speak, and then it I can't is, feel my fins. Yeah, and then it is brought back to shore, and then it is processed, uh, meaning filleted, and then sent to us. And right usually, on. it's we get it in usually sides, right? So chunks of sides, so a quarter or a whole fish, depending on how we want it. And that's it. And so it's a very traditional, very simple, very old school process of catching the fish. It's right from Hawaii. Uh, it's right off the coast of Honolulu. We go out to the docks, we get it, we bring it back, and then we ship it to ourselves. Um, and it's awesome. It's awesome. It's it's amazing. I was really impressed because it looks like the real maguru, like what yep. we're used to. And, and it had a, a nice, rich fat content. It wasn't quite as um, rich. But, you know, there's different cuts. There's You know, fish mm -hmm. are, you know, depending on the season, where they're caught, what their food uh, uh, makeup is, the resources. And, and this big eye tuna was really tasty. Um, I, I'm curious, when we think about the the freezing process, that's part of it, right? Is that part of sustainability? It is. Or is there a, a shelf life? I mean, you got six days to... Yeah, so for some fish, like the tuna never is frozen. 
um, just because that fish doesn't have, as you mentioned, it doesn't have enough fat on it really to freeze it well. You need fat. Think of ice cream, right? If you have really nice cold ice cream, it actually makes it smoother on the palate because the, the colder something can get, the less water molecules get into it. And the less right. water molecules, the smoother it feels in your palate. And so um, we will be huge proponents of freezing things that have high fat content. So actually the salmon that you were talking about, that, that's frozen. And certain salmon, like in the Pacific Northwest, has to be frozen for parasite destruction anyway. It's, it's a requirement that we want to do to make sure human health is also promoted uh-huh. um, and safety. Um, but a lot of the fish that we can freeze, we want to only because of the fact that then there's no waste. One of our biggest problems with fish, but also food in general, is there's a ton of waste in the supply chain because things go bad. But when you freeze something, it doesn't go bad. And so you can continually make sure that that product <laughs> is insured, and that is a very sustainable thing That's in what I keep telling my sweetheart about my freezer. Babe, it's frozen. It's okay. Yeah. It's, I know it looks weird. <laughs> but it's good. It's good. It's really good for you. It's good. And the Japanese have been freezing things actually for many, many years. Um, we're just getting... Uh, around the conversation here in the United States because we all were, you know, uh, scarred with Swanson's fish sticks as kids in the 80s and 70s. And so, you know, now that... Gordon's. Gordon's, yeah, there you go. They're Gordon's local. too. And so now that freezing has come a long way from a science standpoint and gotten a lot better with the technology, it's not bad anymore. It's really, really good. Right, and there's been a process that technology keeps up, so we're more aware of it. We can barcode it. I mean, exactly. Ways to trace it, its its origin, and, and that's um, really part of certifying sustainability, right? I mean, it's like here in Washington State with cannabis, right? Everything's got a little barcode these days, yeah. and I'm sure we will all have a little barcode, too, someday. In case we need to go get a checkup, they'll just uh, scan us and you know do a diagnostic just like the cars. Uh, Bamboo is open seven days a week? It is. Yep, seven and, days a week. And uh, you have a happy hour? We do. We love our happy hour. We really believe, and again, for, affordability is super important to us. So we want to be able to be there available to somebody if they want to eat with us a few Especially times a week. Especially for sushi, man. I mean, because, yeah. you know, two pieces is typically, you know, two nigiri, it's eight, nine, ten bucks if it's... Yeah, and ours is, as you saw on the menu, it's a lot less than that. You yeah. know, our, our, our typical two-piece nigiri ranges from four to six bucks. Right. Um, and then at happy hour, it's even less. Um, and so we really want it to be, it's super premium, high quality product. You know, it's farm to table and everything that we do, our, our kitchen, as well as our fish. Um, but we, we, again, we just believe it's, it's affordable and the way we can do that. Cause a lot of people go, well, how can this be more affordable? I don't get it. We buy directly from the source. And so by doing that, we cut out a lot of the middlemen. So we cut out a lot You're of the extra You're the shame company pricing. in terms of fish, right? Exactly. There you go. <laughs> Come buy your girlfriend a, uh, or boyfriend a beautiful fish diamond. That, well, yes. Yeah, those are works of art. Maybe perhaps uh, we'll call it a diamond roll. And I want to introduce a new word for you, and I think you could run with this. You know, we talk about farm to table. Let's talk about harvest to hand. Yeah. I think that's great because everybody kept saying boat to throat, and I didn't like that one. Harvest <laughs> to hand is good. Harvest, hand, harvest then to it's hand. Everything, right? I like you that. Know, I'm going to use it. All right, right. Please do. TM Chris. Yeah, yeah. Well, SM, <laughs> right? Is it is the sales mark? Uh, so fun. Um, I want us to just stick around because we got more to talk about. I'd like to talk about the bar program because I'm sure everyone's. You know, we can't see the sushi, but they can sort of get uh, you know a little bit of uh, mouth watering. Talk about all this great sake. Hey, Let's folks, stick around. I got the CEO of Bamboo Sushi, brand new restaurant in University Village. In fact, it's 2675 University Village Street, and uh, we'll be right back here on Happy Hour Radio. Start your day the right way. The Commute with Carlson, live and local, weekdays 6 to 9 a.m., Talk Radio 570 KVI. Now more KVI Want to Know Weekends. Back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, welcome back. Time for round three. And all this talk about uh, sustainable sushi has made me a little bit thirsty. 
Uh, speaking with Christopher Lofgren, who's the CEO of Bamboo Sushi, brand new place in University Village. They've got uh, five locations down in the Portland area. They've uh, ventured to Denver, Colorado, and the website is bamboosushi.com. Now, any every good food program has to have a good beverage program. And I was really impressed, not with only the talent of your bartenders, but you had some bar guy there who crafted some really cool cocktails that really blew me away. Thank you. Yeah, Eben. He's uh, he's an amazing bar uh, consultant that we've hired. We Our director of uh, HR has worked with Eben for years. He was uh, brought up in some of the best restaurants in New York City. <laughs> and um, Well-heeled, huh? Yeah, well-heeled. And uh, he came, and we, we've got some incredible cocktails in Portland, and we've, we've always loved our cocktail program. But we really wanted to take it up a notch as we expanded nationally. And so we worked with him, and um, he just did a bang-up job. I mean, to your point, the cocktails are creative. They're uh, really tasty. And at the same time, one of the things we love about our new program is we use a lot of scraps. So we use some of the, the leftover rice to help with some of those things. We, we wanted to, There's a Japanese term called motenai, which means no waste, or uh-huh. it means you know be, be respectful to the environment. And so we wanted to use motenai in the way we do things. And so um, I was wondering if that meant like you have fish eyeballs in yeah. the drinks <laughs> instead of olives. I could give you that in your martini <laughs> next time if you'd like. It might be good, actually. It might be a little bit tasty. It was the Halloween season yeah, this past there you weekend. Go. So, um, but thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed them. Yeah, we've got a, we've got a fantastic I mean, We have beer, wine, sake. We've got, you know, obviously uh, cocktail. We've got spirits, so Japanese whiskey collection, et cetera. We really want to have, and then, of course, a lot of non-alcoholic beverages as well. Um, and we really want to have something great for anybody who comes in, whatever their palate desires that night. I, I like the layout of the restaurant. You, you have plenty of great sight lines. I think these days people want to see and see all the pretty people in New Village, and there are lots of pretty mommies down there. <laughs> uh, but you have an actual uh, square or rectangular sushi bar. Yeah. And then you have the uh, just to the north is the dining area, and then to the south is the is a booth space plus the bar, which is also. Yeah. A giant rectangle, which I think is the best way because you've got people on all sides. It's very efficient for a bartender. Yep. Um, and is that a feng shui layout, or is that something that really just came from a corporate standpoint? No, we really like um, having multiple dining experiences when you come to eat in our restaurants. So any of our restaurants, we like an open layout, as you said. But at the same time, sometimes an open layout can feel like a cafeteria. And a lot of restaurants these days, you know, of course, construction costs have gone up quite a bit. And so restaurants, you know, they're not finishing ceilings. The floors are usually concrete, uh-huh. et cetera. We That's don't right. want to do those things. We want to have finished ceilings. We want to have floors that help absorb sound and also look beautiful, et cetera. And so it's it's a little bit more expensive for us to do, but we want to make it so that the dining experience really feels open and modern and current, but at the same time, these different zones or these different ways so you can come in and have, you can watch the game in the bar, but if you're at the sushi bar, you don't see the TVs, mm-hmm. right? When you're in the sushi bar, you feel secluded in this beautiful zone, but then if you're in the private dining room, you feel like you're a world away there too. So each one is supposed to have kind of evoke a different feeling, and um, I'm happy that you noticed that. Well, I th- also thought the um, or the the amenities, the accoutrements, the chairs and the tables. There was a, a very cool design element to that. Everything was was rounded but sleek, and and I want to say tensile strong but thin. It, there was just a very cool. It's like all right, this is pretty hip. I yeah. Mean, a lot of times you'll find just you know in Japanese restaurants everything is tiny <laughs> for that yeah. reason. And this case was not necessarily obviously. Obviously, your uh, your position to welcome lots of uh, robust husky fans. Yeah, exactly. No, it's true. I mean, look, we're in America, and uh, there's all shapes and sizes in this country, and um, 
at the same time, too, Americans, we like space and we like to feel, you know, like we're in something that's nice. Right. And so uh, we do that. But at the same time, to your uh, other point around sustainability that we, you know, keep coming back to with our with our company, all of our design is focused on sustainability, too. So our tables are made out of recycled paper. The floors are made out of recycled plastic bottles. The chairs are made out of wood shavings. So don't sit on the tables, people, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's, it, but it's all we want it to be that when you come into the restaurants, you would never think it's sustainable in the way it looks. We just want you to say, wow, it's beautiful. And then as we peel back the layers of the onion you start learning about all the different levels of sustainability that we go to but without shoving it in your face we want it to be something that's subtle that's beautiful and that's we call it a conversation right the second you meet somebody you don't need to know their entire life story you want to get to be intrigued by them so we want to intrigue you right it's beautiful wow this is really pretty oh the food looks great oh let me have this and then as you keep learning more and more about the company you'll keep being surprised by how deep that um a commitment of our business goes, but you don't have to know it the very second you walk in. It doesn't have to be shoved in your face. Overwhelming, right? Uh, people want, especially in Seattle, I think we are, uh, there's a little bit of Seattle freeze in everything we do, right? We just don't, I don't need any help. Give me a second. I'll yeah. Let me sort of take it all in. And, and one of the things to take in was truly that sake menu. Um, when I think about Japanese restaurants, a lot of times the sake menu is limited. Plus, it's so foreign for many people outside of the industry. And you see these different, you know, the different letters, different bottles, some bottles are white, blue, there's screw cap, um, there are huge bottles, and they always have some interesting name, the Wandering Poet, the, yeah. <laughs> uh, the Moonlit Vision. Um, yeah. How did you put together your sake list, and is there a partner that you work with to help uh, drive some of those y- unique positions? Yeah, so uh, great question. There's a few people in the world who are truly sake experts. Um, one of them happens to live in Portland, Oregon. His name is Marcus Pekizer. And when Marcus started taking over the sake program for a distributor called Young's Columbia, which is a West Coast distributor, um, he and I met early on. And I said, look, I want to have a world-class sake collection in my restaurants because to your point, all the sushi restaurants have the same sake list. It's all pretty mediocre and it all comes from the large sake corporations. Yeah, And it's all there to drive profit. And for me, at the end of the day, yes, making money is important, of course. But That's how you sustain it, a restaurant, Of I course. <laughs> but what's most important is giving people something that is exciting, unique, and supporting businesses that we really believe in. And just like if you had a great French restaurant, you should have great wine. If you have a great Japanese restaurant, you should have great sake. That shouldn't come up short. And so for us, I wanted to be able to have sake on the menu, and I knew that we wouldn't make a lot of money on sake. We make great money on cocktails. We make great money on beer. We make great money in a lot of other areas. So for me, I felt like this was kind of something we could give away, so to speak, but support things that people would love. And over time, as they came to enjoy them and appreciate them, we'd be able to build the list and build the relationships. And so we've done that over 11 years. Uh, We are the largest seller of sake in Oregon now, which is super exciting. Marcus has been a huge uh, champion of us, and we've been a champion of him. And he's built one of the world's best sake programs for any distributor. Um, And we've worked kind of hand in hand doing that. And um, it's been something we're all really proud of, our team's really proud of. And we love when a guest like yourself walks in and notices. Um, and we love that first-time guest who's like, I'm scared of soccer. I had a bad experience. It was gross and hot and whatever. And so we want to change those ideas for people because we want people to understand the importance of sake in Japanese culture. I, I love it. Um, I don't know if they have sake enough uh, during every meal like they do in France. There's some <laughs> champagne or cremant. We can start with breakfast. Although there was a great article in the Wall Street Journal um, several months ago that talked about breakfast from around the world and mm-hmm. how each culture has different breakfast foods. And I certainly remember, you know, different... The 
Americas, and of course we've got you know, the Norwegians, the, the Swedes up there. And but the Japanese and, and Asian cultures, they definitely had a dried fish or even a seaweeds um, um, yep. component. Uh, I think they have to have starting a breakfast sake. Perhaps that's the nagori, right? Maybe <laughs> you and I can do that together. That'd be a good a good business breakfast sake. I love it. So uh, bamboo, you're going to have um, lunch, right? Lunch starting yes, uh, lunch this month, starts, uh, November twenty second. Okay, November twenty yeah. second. Uh, which will be great because people will get tired of uh, Thanksgiving Day leftovers and have a chance to run down there. Uh, and happy hour is 4.30, wait, 3 to 6? Um, it'll eventually be 3 to 6 beginning in late November once lunch starts. Sure. But before uh, that right sense. now, I think it's 4.30 to 6 as okay. we're just open for dinner right now. I love a three-hour happy hour. Yeah, That's yeah we, want you, we want you to come down and, and lounge around and enjoy. And what's interesting, too, is that you have something which I think is unique. One of my chef friends has... Uh, um, Maono Fried Chicken down there in University Village, and he has a great takeaway window, and that's something yep. I see you've also listed here. We do have a takeaway window. Yeah, we've done that for two reasons. We want people to come up and just grab and go if they want to, but also for Caviar or Postmates or Uber Eats, et cetera, we do a lot of delivery business now. And so for the drivers to come in, we don't want to clog up the front of the restaurant with a bunch of bags and drivers. We want that to be for people who are walking in for reservations or walk-ins. So we've put it on the side, and it's just this really fun little window. So it's almost like a a candy shop of sushi on the side. Mel, i got to say, I'm really impressed uh, with your professionalism, your demeanor, and your your depth of of context and what you're you're doing here. Uh, These days, you know, with apps and technology, everything needs to happen right now. Or I feel like, you know, I'm missing out on something but in your case you've you've been a very patient person uh who's persevered through some of the worst financial times in history and yet you uh are still you you've made it which is great Obviously, fingers crossed we're still working thing. on it but thank you yeah. and uh i think you've got a great restaurant down there and, and, and talking off air we were talking about your uh, training program and, and how difficult it is to a not only find quality people but to find quality people in this marketplace where we have a thousand new restaurants opening yep. up it seems a lot and your place is dominated by you know young people, which is really cool. And um, I'm excited to dine there and have the full experience. Uh, um, you know, probably even pay for it. <laughs> uh, Christopher Lofgren, CEO of Bamboo Sushi. Hey, congratulations and uh, welcome to Seattle. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the warm welcome. Yeah, appreciate the the chance to uh, dive in and chase some great cocktails. Those cocktails were really fun. Of course, the sushi was uh, genuinely delicious. Because um, I'm a sushi snob, I want the good stuff, but I. You know, I just don't want to pay too much for it because I want to have that experience more and more. And I'm, I'm excited yep. that you have uh, an affordable place that uh, has a bright, brand new parking garage I saw <laughs> yeah. going up there. Hey, folks, stick around. we got some final notes, some ideas for uh, Thanksgiving coming up in our final segment. So stick around. Be right back here on Happy Hour Radio. Start your day the right way. The Commute with Carlson, live and local, weekdays 6 to 9 a.m., Talk Radio 570, KVI. You're in the know with KVI Want to Know Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, uh, welcome back. Time for our fourth and final round. And uh, you know, I search the uh, the newspapers. I'm an old school guy. I get the newspaper. I support journalism. And, uh, of course, I like to sit... And not have all these things pop up, you know, got to check and and clothes and cookies and all that. Uh, So the newspaper is always very relaxing. And I found a couple articles here recently. And one is called, um, on the Seattle Times, the state's wacky wacky booze regulation still on the books a century after prohibition. 
Uh, in fact, uh, National Appeal Day, I think, was just here last October or something, 28th, I believe. But uh, here's what they say about Washington. Um, you know, in Washington State, it is against the law to destroy a beer bottle or cask. So uh, it doesn't say beer can, I guess. <laughs> so you can throw beer cans against the, the side of the wall if they're full, but not a beer bottle. Uh, in Idaho, only one in every 1,500 people is allowed to have a liquor license. So, you know, I hear that the uh, that place is a bevy of uh, retirees coming, so there's probably going to be more liquor licenses. Uh, in Kansas, it is illegal to serve wine in a teacup. Uh, it says here they repealed that. So now, <laughs> you never know what those old ladies are drinking now. Maybe you'll know by the rose, the blush on their cheeks. Uh, let's see. In Connecticut, town records cannot be kept where liquor is sold. Right. You don't want to spill on those records because I'm sure, uh, you know, people will want to be able to write cursive correctly. Uh, in North Carolina, alcohol service at a bingo game is not allowed. Too bad for all those uh, dob dialers or whatever you call those uh, big uh, magic markers. I don't know. I haven't done bingo forever since we held it in it costs you betcha. In Nebraska, bar owners must simultaneously brew soup if they are selling beer. What kind of soup is that? Because it's chicken stock. Is that, does that uh, qualify as soup? Uh, apparently, that's been repealed. Uh, in Oklahoma, if a beer is more than 4% alcohol, it must be sold at room temperature. Mmm, yummy. So basically... Uh, they have all these private clubs, so if you want to have a drink, you have to join a private club. Of course, uh, you know the membership that you just go to the door; they'll sign up for five bucks. But it's it's a silly law. In Tennessee, bar owners are not allowed to let patrons make loud or unusual noises. So uh, there's no howling at the moon or mooing or. Maybe you have. Nope, they probably don't serve any chili there. If you know what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, here's one: Washington D.C. Santa Claus may not be used to sell alcohol. Of course, politicians, you can use them because they'll take anything uh, they'll, for money. They'll do anything they, you know, they, you want them to do. And in New York, law enforcement employees are prohibited from holding liquor licenses. Yeah, seriously, right? Because uh, that way they won't be shaking down each other. They only shake down, you know, people who are, are working uh, for a real living. Also in the newspaper, uh, just recently, Cape Canaveral, Florida, a dozen bottles of fine French wine arrived at the International Space Station on Monday. Not for the astronauts, but for science. Science! The red wine will age for a year up there before returning to Earth. Researchers will study how weightlessness and space radiation affect the aging process. I wonder what they should have, like, Lancome do some uh, some creams for the face to talk about the aging process if you're up there with all that radiation. Let's see. But this is not the first time they've had uh, alcohol up there. Let's see. Scotch made a trip and another experiment. Uh, let's see. A French astronaut brought a bottle back on the shuttle Discovery in 1985. Uh, the bottle remained corked in orbit. I guess they didn't have screw cap back then. <laughs> This is probably June 85. Uh, in 2015, a Japanese company known for its whiskey and other alcoholic drinks, would that be sake, set up samples. Now, to me, that means you can enjoy yourself up there. Of course, you uh, you can't put it in a glass. you got to squeeze it out. Um, and here's something. Um, an oven for baking chocolate chip cookies as well as samples of carbon fiber used by Italy's Lamborghini and its sports cars were put up there. And Budweiser. Already has sent barley seeds or barley grains. The barley is really the seed itself 
to the space station with an eye to becoming the beverage choice on Mars. Where's the echo? Mars. Attention, Earthlings. You will drink Budweiser. Uh, yeah, on Mars. Cool. I guess that's part of that um, Matt Damon movie where he had to grow stuff. Of course, they got to find water first, right? And apparently there is some water there. Anyway, uh, remember the newspaper, you can find all sorts of fun facts. And I wanted to share these with you for our final little segment here. Um, of course, uh, if you're not subscribing to some of the newspapers, you should be subscribing to some of our local um, magazines, uh, the knowledgeable who uh, share the word of wine. One is Wine Press Northwest. This is out of Tri-Cities, winepressnorthnw.com. The other is Washington Tasting Room, my friends John and Nadine Vitale. They're over on the uh, um, in Bainbridge area and, and have a fantastic magazine. Of course, there's Sip Northwest, which is Kristen Ackerman and Aaron James. Uh, of course, there's Cidercraft. And uh, local wine events. But if you want to know more and just sort of entertain yourself, remember, happyhourradio.net is the website. And you can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud. But when you're out and about, remember, life is always better with the designated driver. Cheers! <laughs>